I remember probably as most of you do exactly where I was that morning. I had a staff meeting at 10 a.m. and I was getting ready and I had the TV on, the news was on in the background and I could hear that something was different about the news today. So I sat down in front of the TV and I'm not sure how long I sat there. I sat there and I watched live as the second plane hit the second tower. I never made it to the meeting. I don't think any of us did. And I remembered thinking that my parents would always talk about, in their generation, they'd always talk about where they were the moment they heard that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And my generation, and I didn't have a moment, a seminal moment like that. Now I did. Now I do. And suddenly, it's in those kind of bigger-than-life moments where suddenly the words that are inscribed on our monuments, the words that are inscribed on maybe in some of our courthouses, and even in the dollars and the coins in your purse or wallet, the words, in God we trust, suddenly those words meant something. If you remember that weekend, churches across the country were jam-packed. Politicians of really every persuasion were calling on people to pray. They were praying. Even if you remember, celebrities, movie stars, were talking about the need for God, about the need for us to turn to God. And Christians, maybe in some way, most of us, if you were, if you were around then and can remember this, we were trying to just kind of grapple with this. We'd never really faced something like this. And trying to make some sense of it. And we thought, you know, maybe, maybe in this instance, we'll see that shining truth of Scripture that God causes all things to work for his glory. Maybe something good can happen even in an evil as horrible as this. Because we all knew before 9-11, before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that followed, before Katrina, before the great economic collapse, we all knew. America had lost her way. I remember watching the TV that week. We watched a lot of TV that week. And one morning, Anne Graham Lotz, not sure if you know who she is. She's the daughter of Billy Graham. She's a renowned author and speaker. She was on one of these news shows, and they were asking her to kind of help us from a spiritual perspective, make sense of all that's happened. Kind of help us, kind of get our minds around what happened and kind of answer those questions for us. If God really loves us, if he's really there, why would he let this happen? Where was God? Why didn't he stop it? Make some sense for it. And here's what she said. She said this. She said, I would say for several years now that Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. Here is what she said we needed to do. She said, we need to turn to God and say, God, we're sorry We've treated you this way, and we invite you to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. 
we have our trust in God inscribed on our coins, we need to practice it. So this evening, we are beginning a brand new series called Just That, In God We Trust. And it seems like, it seems like a perfect time to do that. Because right now, every four years in our country, the way our government is set up, every four years we have a healthy debate, sometimes a not-so-healthy debate, about the vision and the future and the direction of our country. And right now, you can't escape it. Because really, no matter which political party that you're part of, whether you don't claim one, whether you're a newsmaker, a commentator, whatever it is, there seems to be one thing everybody agrees on. And it's this idea. Right now, today, this time, we are at a pivotal moment in the history of our country. And it's in moments like that that I think it's the responsibility of the church and pastors and leaders to kind of put on the prophet hat, if you will, and really say that right now, really what we need is it's really not important what party you're from, but the most important thing is who you invite to the party. That if we as a country really are going to find our way back again, if we really are going to recover, we have to invite God back. And it's our responsibility as leaders, as pastors, as the church, to stand up and say, you know, we've lost our way. We need to bring God back. And this is a truth that so many of us know in our personal life, right? I mean, for so many of us who are here tonight, the reason you're here is because you reached a place in your life where you knew that you just couldn't go any further without him. That maybe it was a personal loss. Maybe it was just that battle, that insidious battle that we fight with pride sometimes. Maybe it was that void we couldn't fill. But we knew that we couldn't go further without God. That we had to come to this point to place all of our dependence, all of our faith, all of our hope in him. We know this to be true on a personal level. And if it's true personally, wouldn't it also be true on a national level? I mean, we desperately need leadership, don't we? I mean, we desperately need leaders who will stand up and publicly say, God, we declare our dependence upon you. We declare our dependence moving forward, from this day forward, in God we trust. Now, here's the tricky part about that. And I'm not trying to negate the world of political ideas But it seems like every answer that we're receiving is anything but that. I mean, right now, if you're paying attention to what's going on, we're kind of told this. The answer moving forward is to tax everyone less. Or maybe from the other side, it's, well, it's to tax certain groups more. Or maybe the the answer is to provide certain services by the government for everyone. Or maybe... Don't provide so many services, and let's not have the government provide it. And this is a healthy debate and questions that we have to answer, but really, it's not at the root of the problem. In fact, it seems like, I'll just speak for myself, it seems like whenever God is mentioned by a politician, it seems like it's at the end of a long speech, and it's kind of like this addendum. You know it's coming. They're going to end the speech by saying, God bless you, and God bless America. 
I found this kind of humorous. I'm not sure how many of you watched any of the conventions that were on a few weeks ago, but I watched both of them, and I especially watched the last night of each one. I wanted to hear the men speak who are running to be the next president. And both of them spoke, and both of their speeches ended, all the pomp and circumstance. And then, and I think it was the same guy, the same member of the clergy walked on stage and gave a benediction and a prayer. And it reminded me of walking into someone's house, going into their kitchen, and a big party's going on, and dishes and pans are stacked up to the ceiling, kids are running around, it's an absolute mess, but on the corner wall, there's a little sign that says, God bless this mess. That's kind of what it felt like. And for whatever reason, there seems to be such resistance by our leaders to just publicly say, to just kind of get out in front of all this and say, God, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need you to lead us into the future. Great example of this. I'm not sure how many of you remember this, but just a year ago at this time, it was the 10th anniversary memorial for 9-11. A big service was planned in New York City, and the leaders who were planning the service decided they were not going to invite any clergy or have any prayers spoken. And I kind of watched that debate, and I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, ground zero. New York City, where 10 years earlier, more prayers were said on that little small piece of land than any other place on the planet, right? I mean, you probably prayed for people that you will and have and had never met on that day who were suffering or had been suffering on that piece of land. And on a memorial service to, to commemorate that day, no prayers, no clergy would be there. And then I'm not sure if you remember, if you were paying attention to all this and kind of watching the tension that was going on, our president, he stepped in. He kind of tried to bridge the gap, and he showed up, and he read from Psalm 46, which is basically a prayer of dependence on God. And it's really not just that event, right? I mean, every year, and it's going to happen next year, it happened this year, but every year at a graduation event, there, there will be someone who graduates at the top of her class, and she's someone whose life involves God, and she'll want to make some reference to God or maybe lead some short prayer of blessing, and she's told by lawyers and school officials, you can't do that. You can't talk about God. Or maybe it's the high school football team who before they go out and run into each other and tackle each other, they want to just say a prayer of protection from God, and they're told, you can't do that. Now, thankfully, you can still do that in the NFL because you pray a lot before a Bengals game, right? I mean, why are we so unwilling from almost anyone in national leadership to kind of get out front and acknowledge our dependence on God and our thankfulness for every blessing we have? See, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, it hasn't always been that way in our country. I mean, regardless of what you think of some of our earliest leaders in our country, and they made some huge mistakes when it comes to slavery and women's rights issues, but from the very beginning, there was this dependence on God that was spoken very clearly and very publicly from the very beginning because they realized there's a connection between dependence on God and experiencing his blessings. And you know, I think... 
if we just look back at that quote that we looked at earlier from Anne Graham Lotz, I think there was a lot of truth in that. She said, we've just kind of shaken our fist at God and told him to leave. And he's done exactly that. And the question is, how's that working? Now, the story I want us to look at tonight, if you brought your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, so you can turn there. But as we're going there, this is an incredible story. And really what it is, is it's a perfect picture of a, of a national leader and how he should govern and lead. And it's a story, as we're going to see, that has inspired some of our national leaders in years gone by to very publicly invite God to the party, to very publicly express the only way out of the mess that we find ourselves in is to openly declare that we are utterly dependent on God. And without his guidance, without his leadership, there's no way out of the mess we find ourselves in. The story takes place in 10th century B.C., almost 3,000 years ago. And the background of the story is key. The king at this time is Solomon. You know, Solomon, David's son, King Solomon. And it is at a time in the history of Israel, really kind of the golden age of Israel. Israel has no debt. In fact, other nations are coming to Israel to borrow money. Doesn't sound too familiar, right? They were enjoying peace and prosperity, and Solomon is king, and it's time to dedicate the temple. And this is just key to the story, because the temple was really a crown jewel moment in the history of Israel. David had wanted to build this for God, but God said, you can't do it, but your son will. So Solomon, he built it. It took at least seven years of actual building, and I looked it up this week. If we would put it in today's dollars, it would cost conservative estimates $13 billion to build. It was an incredible event, and a dedication ceremony is taking place, and people come from all over Israel. They come, they descend upon Jerusalem, they come there, the streets are lined, there's no room for more people, they're on the rooftops, kind of picture in your mind an Olympic opening ceremony, maybe just 10 times bigger, so people are coming from all over, there's no room, it's just this huge celebration, and on this occasion, King Solomon is going to speak to the Israelites. And what we're going to see in this passage is a beautiful picture of godly national leadership. Because King Solomon, in all his splendor and in all his glory, at this kind of crown jewel moment, pauses to draw a connection between humiliating and humbling yourself before God and receiving his blessing. Look over in um, 2 Chronicles, we're going to be in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 12, it's an incredible story. It reads like this. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. The writer here gives you a little more background. He says, now he, Solomon, had made a bronze platform, which was five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. Basically, about eight feet by eight feet, about five feet high. And he placed it in the center of the outer court. And he stood on the platform. Picture it just for a minute. A hush 
comes over this, this sellout crowd because the king in this moment the country's been waiting for for so long is about to speak. And here's what he does. King Solomon stands on the platform and then he knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Now try for a moment to place yourself there that day. This is the party of a lifetime, right? The whole country has gathered. You have come from maybe hours away. You've walked, you've, you've, you've ridden, you've, fi- you've found a way to get there, and you finally made it, and you are ready to celebrate, right? I mean, this is the biggest party of your lifetime. You just had to be there that day. And now, The party's kind of slowly starting, but now it's official because you see the king ready to make his entrance. And he climbs up on a platform he makes high enough for everyone to see, and a hush falls over the crowd. You're quiet. You're silent. You want to hear what the king has to say. Everybody else is quiet, too. You didn't realize a place could be with this many people so quiet. But then something unexpected happens. The king doesn't speak. Instead, he kneels. Now, that's not at all what you expected, and it's really not why you came, right? What do you do? Maybe you're in one of these streets, and you're lined up, and you're shoulder to shoulder with people. They're in front and in back, and you don't know what to do. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think the decision is made for you because you look ahead and you see a few people starting to kneel. You see some people on your left and on your right, and they're kneeling too, and it's happening behind you, and and, and before you know it, you are kneeling. Suddenly, hundreds of thousands of people who have came to celebrate, to party, are kneeling on the ground. And don't miss this. Don't miss the context here, because this is not a time when Israel was bankrupt, There was no enemy at the gate. The towers had not fallen. No, this is at the height of their peace and prosperity. This is at a time when a lesser man, when a lesser king would be tempted to tell you how good of a leader he is. When a lesser king would say, look at what I have done, but not King Solomon, not today. No, King Solomon in this passage begins where every leader and every nation should begin, by recognizing the sovereign authority and rule and power of Almighty God. It is a godly leader publicly submitting himself and his country to God. Now Solomon is on his knees, and he's finally going to speak. People have came to hear something from the king, and he's finally going to speak But as he begins to speak, you realize he's not talking to you. He's not talking to the crowd that's assembled. Sure, they can hear him, but really what you're hearing is one man praying to his God. And he prays an amazing prayer. We're not going to look at everything he prayed there, but basically he acknowledges that he, even though he is king, is just a servant of the one true God. He prays for his nation. He prays for God's blessing and protection. 
He prays that God will bring justice and mercy. He prays that if the Israelites turn their back on God, that God will discipline them. He even goes far as to say that, God, I know these people. When they rebel, when they forget you, God, and when they're overcome by enemies, which is an incredibly prophetic prayer if you know Israel's history, he says, God, I pray that you won't forget them even though they forget you. He says, God, if they repent, I pray that you will restore. The prayer that Solomon offered that day on his knees, high on a platform for everyone to see was a public acknowledgement that Israel as a country and that he as a leader can only boast in what God has done. That they are completely dependent upon God for everything. It's a lesson in government. It's a lesson in leadership. And it's an individual lesson as well. It's the lesson, the truth, that success only comes after submission. Now, here's the really cool part of the prayer. And here's why we're looking at it tonight. Because 3,000 years ago, King Solomon, at one of the, the most important moments in the history of Israel, kind of pauses in his prayer to pray about you, to pray about me. In this prayer, he prays for us. Look at what he does. Second Chronicles 6, we're going to jump down to 32 and 33. King Solomon says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, that's the Gentiles, which is you, which is me. He's praying for us. He said, When they come and pray toward this temple, then, Lord, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Now, don't miss this. In other words, Solomon says, God, I want you to hear our prayers, but not just our prayers. I want you to hear their prayers as well. Because Solomon knew something that we would see years later in the gospel kind of lived out, that it wasn't just about us. This here, on this day, and this moment, was a prayer for everyone. And that's a truth at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, God gave his one and only son that whosoever might believe. This is not an us or a them prayer, just like it's not an us or a them gospel. It's an everyone. It's a whosoever. Solomon is praying, God, I want you to hear the prayer of any foreigner who puts their trust in you. It's beautiful. It's what one author called the scandalous grace of the gospel. Because really, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've treated God, because, I mean, realize this, Solomon is praying for people who were the enemies of Israel, for people who have attacked and tried to defeat Israel. Solomon is praying for them, for enemies of God, which is really just what we were at one time, right? Solomon is saying this, offer them, and this is so powerful, the same love and grace and mercy that you've offered and shown to us. His prayer goes on. He says this. He says, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that, and watch this, because Solomon knew God was up to something bigger than just Israel. He says, do whatever they ask of you so that 
all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel. Again, this is the truth of the prayer. If a nation or a people or a person is to rise and flourish, every nation, every kingdom must acknowledge God and proclaim their dependence upon uh, upon him. This is true individually, and it's true collectively. And listen, if we as a nation are to make our way forward in the days ahead, if we as a nation are to leave a better future for our children, then it must, it must, it must, it must begin by acknowledging our complete dependence upon God. And anything short of that is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We are doomed to fail without him. Story goes on in Second Chronicles 7. We're going to jump down to um, 11 to 14. Because Solomon, he prays this amazing prayer. The festival, the party has gone on. We're not sure how long. It's gone on for a long time. And Solomon, he, he's been there the whole time. It's, he's worked so hard. His dad talked about this day. He worked for this day. And he finally gets here, and he gets a chance when the party's over to rest. He goes in to his palace. He goes to bed and watch what takes place overnight. Second Chronicles 7, 11 to 14 says, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. In other words, what you set out to do I'm blessing. I'm part of that. But then he goes further. Just as Solomon's prayer went further, God goes further. God says, or or, or it says here, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place as a temple for myself for sacrifices. But when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, In other words, Solomon, you don't know how right you were in your prayer. A a day is coming when Israel will start to believe that they are the reason for their prosperity, that they are the reason for the blessing that they're experiencing, and they are going to put me on the shelf and forget me. And I, at that time, will discipline them for the purpose not of paying them back, but of winning them back. God goes on. He said, when that happens, look at verse 14. He said, I long to show mercy. So if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Listen, there is a timeless principle There is a timeless truth that speaks in this passage here to the very nature of God, to who he is. It's true on an individual level, and it's true on a national level. That God's purpose in disciplining us is not to punish us for what we've done, but to call us back to him. It's exactly what God is saying here. When they do this, when they forget me, I love them so much, I'll send punishment, I'll send locusts, I'll send famine with the hopes that they 
will come back to me. And that's true on an individual level as well. When we, as a person or a nation, turn our backs on God, discipline will come to bring us back. But there's a great promise in this passage. God says, when I do that, if, if you turn back to me, I promise to restore you. There is a connection we need to see tonight between individual and national brokenness and God's blessing. What does scripture say? A broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. It is a call to come back. And in our country, we have had leaders who have understood this on a national level. And there are so many examples of this, and I just want to share one before we close. Back during the time of the Civil War, we talk about how divided our country is now, but our country then, you know it, you've had the classes, you've seen the the movies, read the books. At that time, Americans were killing one another. Hundreds of thousands of Americans were dying on American soil. And at that moment in time, a godly leader stepped up. Because the question on the table, nobody knew how the war would end. Would we once again be the United States? Or or would we forever be the divided states? We were at war with each other. And a man, a very unassuming man, a senator from Iowa named James Harlan, brought a resolution to the Senate floor. And if you didn't know any better, as we read just a portion of this, you would, have just, you would just swear that it's Scripture. It reads just like that. He called on the president to set up a national day of prayer and fasting. It passed through the Senate, and the president signed it very quickly. And here's just a portion of what it said. It said this. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation, which is just fasting. It goes on. He says, And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. This is what we've been talking about tonight, right? I mean, this does not sound like something a president or a senator or a governor or even the sheriff of Mayberry would say, right? I mean, you could get sued if you tried to say this today. If you were on public property, if you were some, you could get sued for this, right? I mean, come on, reading this sounds a whole lot more like scripture than an official government document. He goes on. It says, and to recognize, watch this, the sublime truth announced in the holy scriptures. A senator wrote this? A president signed this? You can't do that. And he says, proven by all history. Now this, this last part here is beautiful. It's what we've been talking about all night, that there just is some unexplainable connection and correlation between obedience and divine blessing, between publicly announcing your dependence upon God and living under his blessing. There's just a connection between the two. 
And, and Harlan and Lincoln, they were students enough of history to realize that the, that the promises of God had been proved and lived out elsewhere. They didn't have to look too far back in their history. Less than 100 years earlier when the nation was founded, it was founded very clearly, very publicly with a dependence upon God. So look at how it finishes here. What is proven by all of history? What is the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures? It's simply this, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. So what happened to us? Where did we go off the rails as a country? Why as a country have we kind of pushed God away? Why are we so self-confident, so self-reliant, so concerned so many times under the name of, of, of just trying to not hurt the feelings of others? Why are we so concerned about offending a small minority when at the same time, when we choose to, to do that, we are offending the one true holy God? Why is it that it takes events like 9-11 or the civil war, to place our focus and our dependence once again upon God just to pick it back up as soon as things seem to be working out right again. I mean, how long will God be patient with us? You see, here is what we need as a country. We need leadership a whole lot like James Harlan and Abraham Lincoln Men and women who will just stand up and say, regardless of the cost politically, regardless of whatever this is going to cost me, there is one sublime, simple truth. If we're going to move forward, it is only if we are publicly declaring and announcing and living out our dependence upon God. We just can't do this on our own anymore. We need someone to say, we declare our dependence upon you. It's not just a slogan. It's not just something we write on our monuments or on our money, but we believe it and we stand on it. In God we trust. The psalmist said it like this, and we'll close. This is who James Harlan was quoting. said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the prayer tonight is may that be us. Let's pray. Father, you indeed are good. You are patient. You, um, you put up with us. You have a long history of putting up with your people. And God, we pray tonight that you will help us to turn our hearts back to you, that some of us need to do that individually. We've never taken that step Help us, Lord, to declare our dependence upon you. But God, help us as a nation once again to say in God we trust is not just a throwaway line written on our money, but it's inscribed upon our hearts. Help us, God, to follow you. And Lord, if we turn back to you, remember your word and turn to us and heal our land. In Christ's name.